Good morning, everyone. Welcome again uh, to Whitestone this morning. Um, before we get started, if you need a Bible or a pen, uh, the ushers will come up and down the aisles. You can uh, raise your hand and they will get those things to you. But today is part three of our Christmas series, Without a Name. We started with Advent, um, and then last week we looked at Bethlehem, and so today we're going to talk about gifts, gifts. And really, when it comes to Christmas, for most people, uh, the first thought that comes to mind, you know, most people in America, is the gifts. Uh, not everyone, but, but most, I would say, or I would think. As a kid, it's what? It's the opening. It's the receiving of gifts. Gifts from your parents, gifts from your grandparents, your uncles, your aunts, um, and, and seeing if they got what they were hoping for. Offhand, I can only remember, I tried to, this is, I only remember once really hoping for something very specific um, on Christmas, and it was this, a fighter jet transformer. The MP-52 Starscreamer. Sadly, though, that Christmas, as I opened my last gift, which was a sleeping bag, I realized that I had not gotten uh, the, the one gift that I had really hoped for. Um, so I was pretty disappointed. That is, until that night when I unrolled my sleeping bag to go... Uh, to bed, it was right there. So, grandmas are pretty clever. <laughs> as, as an adult, though, it kind of changes because now Christmas means more buying gifts, purchasing, you know, needing to purchase for what seems an always increasing number of people more, you know, friends, more relatives, more in laws, more nephews, more nieces. Um, and then you wonder, you know, how am I secret Santa for seven different people? <laughs> Did you know that America as a nation spent $936 billion on Christmas last year? $936 billion. 25% of Americans admitted going into debt purchasing Christmas gifts last year. The average American, each individual, is expected to spend about $900 on gifts this year, which includes an average of $50 per household pet, which is just wild. 34% of Americans buy gifts for their dogs and 22% buy gifts for their cats. So dogs are loved more than cats. There's <laughs> no surprise. But they are both apparently loved more than in-laws. <laughs> because only 19% of Americans purchase gifts for their in-laws. Now, I don't know if all this is, is accurate. It's just what the, the research shows. But it shows that you know, gift buying, gift receiving, gift giving, uh, gift snubbing. It's all a big part of Christmas in America. Uh, and so I thought 
you know, as Americans, we therefore, it's good for us to take a look at the subject of giving, the subject of gifts from a biblical perspective, uh, from the perspective of Scripture. And that's what I want to try to do this morning. And specifically, you know, what can we learn about gifts and giving from the story of the wise men who visited uh, the newborn king? So I want to look at three different aspects of giving from this story. Number one, the givers. Number two, the gifts. And number three, our giving. So we'll start with the givers. In Matthew 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So first, who were these wise men? In some translations, you'll read, it says wise men. In others, it says magi. But it comes from the Greek word magos. Um, in the original Greek, that's what it says. And it's actually a word that appears a few other times in Scripture. And it's very interesting where it first appears. If you look in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, here's what it says in Daniel 1, verses 19 and 20. It says, And the king spoke with them, and among all of them was found was uh, among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before their names were changed. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the other magos um, and enchanters that were in, in all his kingdom. So Daniel and his friends, his three friends, they were part of the first captives that were taken to Babylon. When Babylon came in, uh, defeated and took captives from Judah. They were among the first captives. This is 600 years before the birth of Christ. Remember uh, Rama? Last week, we spoke a little about that. This is that time. And after all the training that Daniel and his friends received, it was, they were found to be 10 times more impressive than all the other magi in Babylon as far as their wisdom and their understanding. And again, actually in the next chapter in Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, it says, No wise men, this is Daniel speaking, no wise men, enchanters, magos, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So it appears, when you look at these passages, it appears that there was this elite group of people called magi that were there in the east and that existed at least 600 years before the birth of Christ. In fact, even secular history backs this up. Here's what Herodotus said, a Greek historian. He said, the Median tribes are these, the Busei, the Peritasini, the Strucates, the Rizanti, the Budii, the Magi. And here's what the Jewish philosopher Philo wrote early in the first century. He wrote this, Among the Persians, there is the body of the Magi, who, 
investigating the works of nature for the purpose of becoming acquainted with the truth. So again, you have in the east where the Babylonians and then later the Medes and the Persians ruled, there is this tribe or there is this elite group of people called Magi. And they were the ones who investigated the sciences. They you know, studied the stars. They contemplated the mysteries of the universe. And then they served as advisors to the kings of their day. These, this, these were the class of men that showed up after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Which means, therefore, that they would have had to travel at least, you know, 900 miles in order to get there. Think about that. Imagine traveling 800, 900 miles on foot or even on a camel or a donkey or a horse even in the Middle East. I mean, our family usually goes down to southern Indiana uh, to celebrate Thanksgiving with my in-laws during Thanksgiving, and that's what we did actually just a few weeks ago. That's 430 miles, less than half. And of course, we were traveling in a car or in a minivan. But to me, that's a long trip. That's a long trip. And for some reason, I don't know why, but it seems so much longer if we have to make a stop for gas or for bathrooms. For, I just, for some reason, I have this inner clock with a needle that just keeps spinning whenever we're stopped, thinking, oh my goodness, we're losing so much time. <laughs> and then I start to think, man, we could be there by now. Is that normal? I, okay. So the idea of walking all the way down to southern Indiana instead of driving or riding on a slow, bumpy animal that entire way, hundreds of miles. I mean, I love my in-laws. They're great. But, I mean, but think about this. This was the wisest thing that the wise men ever did because they got to see God with their own eyes. They came face to face with the one who created all the stars and galaxies that they were always studying about and researching. And I think this is a good reminder for us because this itself is one gift that we can give to God, and that is to value him over our convenience or, and value him over our time. Because it's so easy to think, right? It's so easy to think that if I go and I help this person out, my whole day is going to be shot. And there's other stuff I want to do. Or, you know, I know this person desperately needs a ride, but my driveway's not plowed. You know, I'm sure someone else will offer. But it's these situations, these incidences where choosing to serve God, choosing to do it to serve God, specifically when it's not convenient and when it uh, takes time that God is truly honored by. 
This is what God greatly values, these kind of offerings to him, these gifts to him. But what else is cool is that the wise men somehow knew that they even knew that a king of the Jews had been born. Because remember, when they arrived in Jerusalem, it was a surprise. Basically, no one there knew. So how did these magi coming 900 miles away, how did they know that a king of the Jews had just been born? Well, it helps to remember where they're from, the east. Babylon, Persia, that is where Daniel was taken captive and where he lived for over 70 years of his life, that region. And of course, Daniel was known as the wisest magi of his time, right? And he wrote down a bunch of prophecies. And here's one of those prophecies in Daniel 9, verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city. So it's the start of a prophecy um, that Daniel receives about the nation of Israel, that he communicates and writes down this prophecy about the nation of Israel, his people and his holy city, Jerusalem. And according to the context and the Hebrew language, it's very clear that it's referring to 70 weeks of years. Okay, so you've got 70 weeks times seven years, 490 years total. And what it goes on to say in the prophecy is that there would be 69 of those weeks, or 483 years, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem until an anointed one is cut off. The anointed one is clearly referring to Christ, who we know was crucified, who was cut off as an adult. So then the question becomes, all right, well then when was this decree to restore and build Jerusalem? It was in 444 BC. That's when a decree was issued from Persia for Nehemiah to go back and to rebuild the walls to restore the city of Jerusalem. So by the time that the wise men saw this star about 444 years later, they would have known that the Messiah, the anointed one, has to be born soon. Has to be born soon. Not only that, but many of the Magi were of Jewish descent. As we read in Acts 13, you read about a Jewish Magi there. So it's very possible that these were Jewish Magi, that is, descendants of the Jews who were taken captive to Babylon many years earlier and who had just settled there and continued to live there in Babylon and then later Persia. And if that's true, then it could also explain why they were looking for a star. Because in Numbers 24, 17, it says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So a future king of Israel was always connected to a star. So when God put this very unique star in the sky or this astronomical event that they had never seen before, it convinces them that a king of the Jews has just been born. And that's why they show up in Jerusalem asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
But the point that I just kind of want to draw out from this is that these magi or these wise men, they apparently knew the scriptures. They apparently were familiar with the scriptures. They knew the prophecies of Daniel, what was written in the book of Numbers, probably a lot of other passages as well, a lot of other scriptures as well. And again, that itself is a gift that we can also offer to God, our mind, our knowledge, being familiar with his word, memorizing it, digging deep into it in order to uncover all of its truth as much as possible, like these wise men did. Because we have, I think, a tendency to way underemphasize knowing God's word. Because we say, well, okay, but it's really all about love. Just love your neighbor. That's what God wants. And that's right. If you understand all mysteries and all knowledge and you don't have love, it is nothing. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. But loving your neighbor is the second greatest commandment. What is the first? Loving God. Matthew 22, 37, and 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. With all your mind. Love God with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So love the Lord with all your mind. Use your mind to fill it with his word, the mind that he gave you. This is a gift I believe that God greatly values, to give him your mind, just like the wise men did. Now, secondly, what about the actual gifts that the wise men brought with them? to bring and to present to the newborn king of the Jews, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It always reminds me of a song, a certain song. Now, just asking how many of you have a very easy-to-pick, favorite all-time Christmas song? Doesn't, without any hesitation, you could say it right away. A lot of you. Uh, for a lot of others, I'm sure there immediately five or six come to mind because there's a lot of them out there, a lot of great ones out there. Um, for me, my favorite has always been Oh Holy Night. Um, I love that song. Pretty well known. But there's another song that I really like or I have liked for a while that's not anywhere near as popular. It came out in 2008. And it's the song How Many Kings. Now, if you've, anyone familiar with that song? All right. Here's the course, and maybe it'll sound familiar to some of you. How many kings stepped down from their throne? How many lords have abandoned their home? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their heart to romance a world that is torn all apart? And how many fathers gave up their son for me? Only one did that for me. So it's a great reminder of all that was given up for us and that only Christ sacrificed all that for us. But in the song, there's another line that talks about the gift of the Magi, the gifts of the Magi, and it sums up their, their symbolism or their meaning pretty well. It says this, gold for his honor and frankincense for his pleasure, and myrrh for the cross he'll suffer. 
And these are the gifts, of course, that are mentioned right in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother, with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So there you have those, those three gifts. But notice, before they opened their treasures and before they offered to him these three gifts, what did they do? Yeah, they fell down and they worshiped him. These highly educated, highly respected, you know, men of status who had just come from and met with and been in the presence of the king in Jerusalem, these intellectuals from a distant country, likely traveling with a small entourage along with them, and who had just entered this little town of Bethlehem, and I'm sure they turned a few heads as they were slowly moving through town. These men, what's the first thing that they do when they come in the presence of this baby, of this child? They fall down. They prostrate themselves and they worship him, this newborn king. And again, I know we usually focus on the, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh as the gifts that were brought to Jesus. But here's another gift, just the gift of humility, giving Christ the gift of humility before him and of genuine worship. Because there is no greater gifts, no greater gifts that we can offer to Christ. You know, on the one hand, yes, it's great if we include or we invite someone new in our Christmas celebrations out of love for them. Or, you know, we, we buy our friend a, uh, a study Bible or book in order to encourage them in their walk with Christ. Or even to take a name or two off the tree in the cafe in order to provide some needs for someone that we've never met. All these are excellent, absolutely excellent things to do without question. But look at what it says in Matthew 23, 23. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So there are many very commendable things that we can do at Christmas. Great opportunities that are presented and put before us. But let's not get so busy doing those that we neglect the weightier gifts that we can give to Christ. You know, the essential, the most basic, the most meaningful gifts, and that is humility before him, true worship and focus on him. Like the wise men, first they came, humility and worship, and then the other gifts. Starting with gold. Gold has, we know, long been considered the most precious metal in the world, the highest form of wealth. And in ancient times, because it was so rare, it was always associated with royalty, with royalty, especially with kings. It signified wealth and status, um, so kings pursued it. King Solomon, right, we know he was the wealthiest king in all history of Israel. Now look how much gold came in every year. 
to him. 1 Kings 10, 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. You read that and you're probably thinking, wow, that is a ton of gold. But you'd be wrong. It's 22 tons of gold. Over $1 billion worth of gold coming in to his kingdom every single year and just accumulating. Not only that, but his father, King David, left behind over a thousand talents of gold. Gold was a symbol of royalty. It meant you were king. The second gift it mentions is frankincense, which for those who are not familiar, it's a white resin or gum which you can extract by making incisions into the bark uh, of a, or the trunk of a tree. And that causes this resin to flow out, kind of like milk. As far as I know, I really don't. I mean, I really have no clue. I looked this stuff up. <laughs> Just wanted to sound smart. But apparently, as they say, when you burn this resin, it becomes very fragrant very highly fragrant. And that's why it was used for a long time and has been used a long time in worship. Um, in the Old Testament, it was considered a sweet aroma to the Lord. Look what it says in Leviticus 2.2. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Also in Exodus 30, verses 68, it says, In front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning and at twilight. He shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord. So frankincense was clearly used by the Israelites when they worshiped Yahweh one true God. And it was burned with the intent to produce this very pleasant aroma, this very pleasant fragrance to be enjoyed by God for his pleasure. And then finally, you have myrrh. Myrrh was also taken from a tree, very similar to the way frankincense was, but it was more of a spice and it was used primarily in the process of embalming the dead embalming a, a body. So it had a very direct connection with death. In fact, it was also mixed together with wine in, and given to those who were dying in order to numb their pain a, a little bit. Um, it, was, it was very bitter. Myrrh is very bitter, but when mixed with wine, it created this narcotic, a type of narcotic that could dull the pain a little bit. In fact, look what it says in Mark 15, verse 23. They tried to give him, talking about Christ on the cross, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Jesus refused. On the cross, Jesus refused to take it because he was choosing to experience every drop of God's wrath directed towards our sin. Jesus came to suffer all of our punishment. And so taking that drink would conflict with the whole purpose of him coming and of the cross. 
So that's what we can see as we look on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection. But from the perspective of the Magi, from their perspective, they were coming in search of the newborn king. So their main intent in bringing myrrh was most likely because myrrh was actually part of the anointing oil for kings. In Exodus 30, starting in verse 22, this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh and of sweet-smelling cinnamon and aromatic cane and of cassia and a hint of olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil. It shall be a holy anointing oil. This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. So these wise men likely brought the myrrh because they knew that this was the king of the Jews, and this was their way of anointing him as the king. So when you look at the full picture of these gifts that they brought for Jesus, you have they brought him gold to honor him as the king. They brought him frankincense to worship him as God. And they brought myrrh to anoint him as our sacrifice. So he is king, he is God, and he is savior. This infant. And so when it comes to our giving, when it comes to us offering to God in return for all that he has done for us, let's give to him just like these wise men did. Men who traveled almost a thousand miles on foot for months because Christ is worth it. So let's also value Christ above our time and above our convenience because he is worth it. The wise men also knew scripture. They were likely very familiar with Daniel's prophecy, with what it said in Numbers, likely a lot of other scripture as well. So let's give to God that gift as well, to love the Lord our God with all our mind. And when the wise men saw Jesus, they immediately fell down and worshiped. And there truly no better gift that we can offer to Christ than great humility before him and deep worship of him. So let's not get busy doing so many good things that we neglect to do the greatest thing, the weightier gifts that honor and glorify Christ the most. And then, of course, the Magi offered three specific gifts, treasures, gold for the king, frankincense for the son of God, and myrrh for the savior. So let's also ask ourselves, do I really honor him, honor Christ as king? I mean, who really sits on the throne in my life? Who really calls the shots every day? Is it me or is it Christ in me? And do I really worship the Son of God? Not just pray in his name and ask for things, not just call him my best friend, 
But do I ever stop, just stop, and worship him, and give him my full attention, and let myself be overwhelmed at how great he is? And do I acknowledge what he did for me as Savior? Not just thank him verbally or take part in communion, but do I hate my sin that put him on the cross? Am I appalled at my sin and turn from it? That's the best way to truly appreciate his sacrifice. So my encouragement to us this morning is for us to look for ways to give Christ all of these gifts as we celebrate his birth this year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, you truly are the, the, the creator, not, of this, not only of this very small planet in the midst of the many galaxies and universe, as vast and breathtaking and amazing as this earth itself is. Lord, you are creator of all, and yet you sent your son, you, Christ, came to this earth. Your value is of infinite worth, and I pray that we would follow the example that we can see from these wise men. May we come before you with great humility. May we give you our full attention and worship. Or may we value you over our time, over our convenience. May we consider you truly worth it, Lord, and offer you our mind, our intellect. Give you our thoughts and desire to know the truth and to hide it in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would honor you as king truly, that Christ would be king in our life, that we would worship him as God, we would truly appreciate and thank and live in light of the cross. Lord, help us. We need your spirit. We need you to guide us and to enable us to appreciate all that Christ is and what incredible a gift this was that you gave to us through the birth of Christ. We thank you so much. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Have a wonderful day. If you would like prayer, we have um, on both sides up in the front people who would love to pray for you.